This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Winchester Repeating Arms Company. Winchester, makers of fine mechanical devices such as flashlights, roller skates, fishing rods, and nothing else. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, it's another Haunted House Week. Yay! With the classic film, 1973's Legend of Hell House, and the modern film, 2018's Winchester. We're doing Winchester as a request. Who requested Winchester, Kelsey? Chloe. Chloe, thank you very much. We will be discussing our thoughts on Winchester. I wonder if you agree. <laughs> Let us know. So, before we get into the show, Kelsey, what do we do? We do Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Why don't you give me what you got? What special effects artist created the werewolf transformation scene in 1981's An American Werewolf in London? Stan Winston. No. Damn. Rick Baker. Yeah. And there's even a little bit of uh, trivia for the answer. Yeah. His work on the film earned him the inaugural Academy yep. Award for Best Makeup. I remember we talked about that, but what am I really bad at? Names. Names. Really bad at names. Rick Baker. Rick Baker. Name the composer who scored the music for The Thing, 1982. John Williams. That's her default composer. <laughs> Ennio Morricone. Sure. Oh, right. You hate Westerns. <laughs> did he do the spaghetti ones? Yeah, he did the Fistful of Dollars and all those. He's famous for doing the wah But he also did a lot of Dario Argento stuff, too. So I, I don't know if I would have been able to recall that either, and I feel really bad. <laughs> but you gave me one in a, with a name I couldn't remember. I'll give you one, too. It's fine. All right, Kelsey. The Legend of Hell House, 1973, directed by John Huff, written by Richard Matheson based on his own novel starring Roddy McDowell, Gail Honeycutt, Pamela Franklin, and Clive Revel. What is The Legend of Hell House about? Three people who are good with haunting stuff. Uh <laughs> And Two haunt people. Three haunt people. <laughs> the main guy's wife go in to investigate uh, the Everest of haunted houses, Hell House. And uh, as you can expect, things don't go great. Most of our synopses will end with, and things don't quite turn out as planned. Or, <laughs> and shit goes down from there. And, yeah, so... This is this is another one. That's that's the premise. They are sent to investigate the most haunted house in the world or whatever. This sounds really familiar. Sounds kind of like Rose Red a little bit, but this is a completely different group of people and but it is again 
people with different specialties in paranormal activity, different types of psychics and stuff, just like Rose Red, where they get a bunch of people with different psychic abilities that each have a different complementary specialty. So they do that in here, too. Should people watch this movie? Yes. I think you should. You thought I would like this movie, but you weren't too keen on it yourself. Why do you recommend that people should watch it? No, I, I love this movie. I just don't like the ending. Yeah. I think it's great until the ending. Will you agree? Why don't you watch it and find out? And when we get back, we'll talk about 1973's The Legend of Hell House. From beyond the grave comes the spirit of a madman. The house tried to kill me. It almost succeeded. For the sake of your sanity, pray it isn't true. Spirits of the dead can indeed possess the human body. The Legend of Hell House, rated PG. All right, Kelsey, why don't you get us started? What actually happens in The Legend of Hell House? Okay, so one of the best physicists of the five best in his field, as we are told from the very get-go. Weird way of putting it, sure. He is asked by a very old rich man to look into Hell House and see if there is proof of life after death. Why would there be proof of life after death at Hell House, Kelsey? Like I said, it's the Everest of hell of uh, haunted houses, and it's meant... Obviously, this old man is dying and wants to know if there's a way for him to go on after he's dead. And so Hell House is... It has a crazy reputation because 20 years ago, a group of people went in there to see if that it was haunted and then a bu- and most of them died and only one of them survived and that survivor is going in for them for the second time. Roddy McDowell, by the way. Yeah. The owner of this house, Emmerich Blasco, a six foot five perverted millionaire. <laughs> this so says its Wikipedia entry. <laughs> yes. The roaring giant they call him. What did he look like? His was a frightening visage. Like the face of a demon that had taken on some human aspect. How tall was he? Uh, he was six foot five. They called him the Roaring Giant. Because he is known to be doing all sorts of weird, kinky shit. Kind of like uh, Caligula. Yeah, very much so. The wife character, Anne, she asks what makes the house so evil to Fisher, who is Roddy McDowell. And he lists off a bunch of things. Drug addiction, alcoholism, Alcoholism, sadism. sadism. Bestiality, mutilation, murder, vampirism, necrophilia, cannibalism. Not to mention a gamut of sexual goodies. Shall I go on? How did it end? If it had ended, we would not be here. (laughs) And then Dr. Fisher chimes in. It's about to end, Mr. Fisher. Dr. Barrett believes he can put an end to this it's very strange to me because he kind of doesn't believe in ghosts yeah so he's very much the pragmatist of the group he believes in energy but he says that energy is different from a ghost yeah throughout the movie he explains how there basically there's a scientific explanation for ghosts not a scientific explanation for why we think there are ghosts but 
we as humans leave energy behind and this energy manifests in different ways, but it's not a personality. It can't react. It can't make decisions. You do not live on after death. It's just an energy we leave behind. And so he's an interesting pragmatist, I think, in this regard, because he doesn't just disbelieve it outright. He thinks, no, there's something going on here, and it is spooky as fuck, and it is death energy, but, like, it's not uh, and a he personality. Rec- he recognizes that it can affect you. Yeah. It can affect your decision-making, it can affect the way you behave, but that it is not a, pr- a person, a presence, right. personality. Which is why he believes he should go in alone uh, because it could be dangerous, but the millionaire dude says, no, you're bringing along these other people, including Roddy McDowell. He's a physical medium. Whereas the chick is a mental medium. Yes, and spiritualist. Yes, she is very much a prude. She gets extremely uncomfortable whenever they talk about sex yeah. and all that. Florence Tanner. And because of the history of this house, they're going to be talking about sex, and it's going to be very sexy throughout. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Florence Tanner, she's the young mental medium, uh, Ben Fisher is the physical medium, and Anne, who is Dr. Barrett's wife. Yes. She insists on going along with him because she goes along with him on all of his investigations, and he puts up a little bit of a fight, but ultimately he's like, nah, it's fine, you can come along. She wants to come because he has a machine that he thinks will clean the energy of the house. Yeah, it'll dispel that energy we were talking about. And she is excited to see him make this ground, this breakthrough. Yeah, absolutely. So can we talk about Roddy McDowell as Fisher a little bit? Okay. Now, he's not quite so weird, but I think if they had made this movie 10, 20 years ago, they could have gotten totally Crispin Glover to to play this role. So he's not like, man, like that, like when Crispin Glover gets like that, but he's kind of weird and quiet. I think if they made it today, it would probably be Killian Murphy, <laughs> but very much like, like that. I love Fisher in this movie. Roddy McDowell is great. If you don't know, Roddy McDowell plays... Peter Vincent in Fright Night, which is very good. We did an episode on a double feature, actually, on Fright Night. You should go back and listen to that one. That's a very good movie. And he plays the cowardly nighttime horror movie show, like Vampire Slayer host guy. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, he's really cool, and he is great in this, and I absolutely love him in it. Uh, I actually really like Barrett, too, the husband. He's gruff. And unlikable in many ways, but I, I I find his character interesting. I like his wife. I kind of like all the characters in this. Yeah. And for the rest of the movie, it's just going to be these four virtually. Yes. When they show up at the house, there's lots of low angles and fog. The shots are so good. Yeah, it's it's really fun. Like, they took it very seriously, I feel, for being what ultimately amounted to kind of an unseen movie. How sad. They, they they took it very seriously. Yeah, no, I, I think this movie has great angles and great acting. Right. Um, and we don't even see the title card. There's this, oh, mwah, ooh, that late title card. <laughs> doesn't appear until you actually see the house. Mm-hmm. So the legend of Hell House doesn't appear on screen until you see Hell House. And that's after 
the deal where Barrett is hired. It's after he's talking to his wife and then they drive there and then they show up there and they go in and then we see the house finally from like this aerial shot or maybe it's a low angle. No, I can't it's remember. low angle. Yeah. And it's just the legend of Hell House. And I'm like, oh, oh, it got me. It got me. And as soon as they get there, the mental medium, who I said is a bit of a prude, says it's hideous. And he goes, you haven't even gotten inside yet. And she says, I don't have to be inside to know. Yep. Yep. One of the things I love about their interactions, though, is that everyone here acts like everything is old hat. They don't like the only one who does any explaining is Dr. Barrett, because he's the only one who's doing anything that nobody understands. Everyone else is like, yeah, no, there's this shit exists. And they don't need to convince us. They just go right out the gate. This is this is real. But again, Barrett doesn't believe in the energy in the way that the other two do. Right. But he believes it exists. Right. So even the scientist is like, yep, I expected that to happen. Yeah. No, he believes in the shit he sees. He doesn't. He's not a disbeliever. He doesn't necessarily believe that she's communicating the way that she thinks he she is. Yeah. He thinks it's psychosomatic. Right. Yeah. But it's all everyone's like, yeah, no, this is what a mental medium is. This is what a physical medium. He's, you know, he's this, she's that. And they they talk about it like, yep. It's nothing. Yeah. Like it's nothing. And I really appreciated that. I, it was very believable and and introduced a really interesting atmosphere throughout the movie, I think. When they very first walk in. The mental medium says, the house, it knows we're here. And then she turns to the wife and she says, I'm concerned for you. And she goes, and the wife says, I understand. And she goes, I wonder if you do. I hope I didn't disturb you. It's just that I'm concerned for you coming into this pest hole. Yes, I understand. I wonder if you do. Yeah. Because basically she's telling her, I think you're in danger here. Yeah. So this woman, the mental medium, Tanner, Florence, she has finds a connection right away. And we know that there are tons of spirits here because lots of people died in this house, including Belasco himself. Uh, but all of his guests and everything, the assumption is he killed all of them. And... As a ghost. They believe that his ghost stayed there yeah. and has been killing anyone who comes in. But also all the guests that he had here when they had their big orgies and shit like that, people would be killed and and, and die and then their spirits would inhabit the place. So uh, it, it kind of comes out when, when Fisher says, you do not fight this house. Yes, I know the score. You do not fight this house. Look, Hell House doesn't mind a guest or two. What it doesn't like is people who attack it. Belasco doesn't like it. His people, they don't like it. And they will fight back and they will kill you. So you listen to me. You just leave that damn machine alone and you spend the rest of the week resting, doing nothing. When Sunday comes, you tell old Deutsch anything he wants to hear and bank the money. If you try anything else, you will be a dead man with a dead wife at your side. Because we find out that Barrett is going to try to clean this house. That's his goal. We'll get to this when we actually get to that moment uh, in the movie. But Tanner, she's the one who starts interacting with things like fucking immediately. They try right away to have what they call a sitting. Before we get there. Okay. When they're walking around the house, they find a chapel. Yeah. And immediately she is like, I can't go in there. Yeah. And when they go inside, the wife asks her husband, you know, why couldn't she come in here? And he 
he kind of treats the mental medium like she is all for show here. And he's just like, oh, she just, it's too much for her in here. And Yeah, well, I mean, it's not like he's denying that she feels something. It's just that he's like, well, part of the nature of mental mediums is, you know, you got to put on a show. And she's like, I found this this recording. And so they listen to it. And it's Belasco himself. Welcome to my house. I'm delighted you could come. I'm certain you will find your stay here most illuminating. Think of me as your unseen host. And believe that during your stay here, I shall be with you in spirit. May you find the answer that you seek. It is here, I promise you. And now... I'll Roddy McDowell says that was left for us when I came in. Yeah. He wants us to know that he's here, you know, etc. And there's also this, I, I don't want to say confusion, but like open mindedness that like, fuck it, maybe Belasco's still alive. We don't know. He could be just walking around here murdering people for all we know, because... Tanner is like, this thing started on its own. I didn't start it. And he's like, well, he could have started it. It's like, yeah, well, how is he going to get around, Barrett says, without us noticing? And Fisher is like, like the last couple minutes, we've all been staring at this record player. He could have easily walked by and we never would have known. Yeah, he says he could will people to an object and then walk among, among them. And the guy says, I doubt that. And Roddy McDowell turns to him and he's just like, do you? Like, yeah. do you really? Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, like Roddy is just like, wait, you don't believe that he's here? Right. But it could You're in easily... a lot more danger than I yeah. am. <laughs> uh-huh. it, he could, if, if he was still alive, he could easily just turn on the record player and then have people go to it when it's playing. And then that's how he gets around, you know, like that's, or as a spirit, he could be controlling this with his mind. But again, Barrett's like, it doesn't have a will of its own. Yeah. The mental medium says, I believe there are multiple personality survivors in here. Again, this is this is all up in the face of what Barrett says. Multiple personalities? Not, there's no such thing, you know. And this is when she says, I'd like to do a reading. Yes. And so, so they do. We know what a reading is. They're basically having a seance. Yes. And so they all sit down and have this seance and she ends up basically manifesting an energy of what we find out she believes is Belasco's hidden son that nobody knew about, that he tortured and kept there. And he says, get out or I'll hurt you. I don't want to hurt you, but I must get out before I kill you all. Yeah. And no one leaves. (laughs) Right. Also somewhere in here, Barrett says to Fisher, like, do you want to do anything? Do you want to have a reading? And Fisher's like, no, I'm not ready yet. He had a traumatic experience in here in the past, and he is not opening up his mind at all to do any of this stuff. Because he's really afraid. Yeah. And later on in the movie, Barrett accuses him of just using, like, the whoever the guy is that owns the house now, the old rich dude. Oh, yeah, uh, Deutsch. He's like, oh, you're just using him for his money. And he's like, fucking yeah, I am. This house almost killed me once. I'm not going to let it do it again. But if somebody's willing to offer me a bunch of money to just It's like $100,000 to stay there for a week and report back. Yes. So, but during this first reading... The table starts to shake Uh and a bunch of stuff happens. 
And she's just like, I'm normally just a mental medium. Um, how strange that it would manifest as a physical medium. Uh, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. And Roddy McDowell says, so does this house. Yeah. Because Roddy McDowell is very much aware you are being used. But because she's not normally a physical medium... She later assumes that he's being used without realizing that he has completely shut himself out from the house. Yeah. Then later they all go to their rooms and the mental medium is again disturbed by this ghost that she again believes is the son of Blasco. And he throws a blanket at her, right? He's like, he's messing with her and she can tell. And she's like, you think you're so clever, don't you? If you're so clever, why are you a prisoner? And then it like runs out and slams the door like a child uh would. And she thinks that he is too afraid to move on, which is causing his energy to become angry. Yeah. They end up having another reading. This time a scientific sitting. Yes. So they put her in a chair and they enclose her in this net or whatever it is. And he has all these electrodes and stuff monitoring the atmosphere and all of that. And he's recording the, the seance happening. And sure enough, she starts getting possessed and we start seeing like um, ectoplasm, which is this energy that the body leaves behind coming off of her fingertips and snaking together. And And for this time period, it's pretty well done. It is. And Bear's describing this whole thing as it's happening. And there's a bunch of zooms being used right now. And they're really well done. Yeah. It doesn't feel cheap. It doesn't feel stupid. It doesn't feel like, oh, my God, I get it. Yeah. It's actually used very well, effectively. And they need to stop the thing because she ends up kind of losing it. Uh, And they both kind of feel vindicated by this. Tanner feels like, see, obviously something's happening. I'm being possessed by the spirit. It's real. And... Barrett is like, we just saw what I was talking about. That ectoplasm, that's what I'm talking about. It doesn't have a personality. It's just an energy that's left behind. Now I know what I need to do. I'm going to bring in my machine. And he gets some in a jar. But when he, he does. He tells it to leave some in the jar. Or yes, he, he instructs tells, it. Yeah, he's well, he's telling her because she in her trance is like controlling it. That's what he thinks. Leave a sample in the jar, please. It, like, makes this snapping sound, and then she screams. Yeah. And Barrett just kind of looks at her, and he's like, seems all right, and walks away. Because he's way more excited about the ectoplasm than he is to care about this poor woman. Yeah. And then Roddy runs to her and makes sure that she's okay. Now they're going back up to their rooms again. And there's something that I wonder if you noticed. Did you notice anything on all of the walls in this house? No. There are pictures of naked women everywhere. Oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Which has a lot to do with all of the sexuality. Psychosexual nature of what was going on in this house when when people were alive. And at one point, the mental medium walks into her room and she sees there's someone in her bed. Yeah. And when she turns, when she opens up, when she pulls the sheet off, it's gone. Yeah. And she keeps saying, I keep having this, these incidents in my room that- that day at like lunch or, or or dinner or something like that later that day. And Barrett's like, no, I don't, I don't believe that the, you know, <laughs> I know I keep drilling this home, but so is Barrett like this whole entire time. Uh, I could explain exactly what that is. It's not that. And she gets mad at him. And all of a sudden the room starts 
losing it. The table shakes and flips and things start flying and glass shatters and the chandelier almost falls down on Barrett and things are going crazy. And, and Barrett gets pissed at Tanner and nobody can explain it because she's like, can't you see it's Fisher? He's the physical medium. And Barrett's like, no, the spirit is using you. It's you. It's your fault. You attacked me. Doesn't it make any sense that, that, all of a sudden, I'm the one that's targeted when you're mad at me. But I don't really understand this because it stops when she screams out, no. Yeah. And he even recognizes that she stopped it. He's like, you're the one that stopped it. And it's like, so why would I be the one to have started it? Because she, it's, it's the energy that she's not controlling. And when she tries to control it, that's when it stops. That's why he's convinced that it's her. And he goes off in a huff. He's like cut or something like that. So later that night... Fisher is up and he's walking around and Anne, Barrett's wife, starts seeing shit. Yes. And she ends up basically sleepwalking downstairs and goes up to Fisher and she she says this whole thing. This whole monologue about sex. Sex and the four of us can get together and be all naked. Mrs. Barrett. Mrs. Barrett. So Fisher ultimately, instead of like, hey, great, this chick wants to do me. <laughs> okay, but if there's any girls there, I want to do them. He slaps her. Yes. And she's naked. She's taken off all Yo, her clothes. Oh, she took off her robe. And then when she, That's when she when he wakes slaps up, her. yeah, she gathers together her robe and runs off all upset. And he doesn't say anything to Dr. Barrett. And she runs back up to her room. And she doesn't say anything to him either. At this point, the mental medium is super fed up because she's so annoyed that they keep blaming her for shit. Yeah. That she goes looking for Daniel and she finds a skeleton chained in the cellar and she feels vindicated. She thinks that is Daniel. Yep. So they bury the body, which is one of the things you do to get rid of the energy or whatever. They bury the body, but that doesn't stop the things that are happening to Tanner. And she ends up having another incident that night. And it ends up scratching her. Now, we already know there's a cat in the house. We've seen it, like, once, I think. Kitty. And, um, yeah, she... Oh, no. It is attacked. She is attacked by the cat. Yeah, she, well, this... Well, yeah, she's literally attacked by the cat later It's fucking on. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> and she ends up finding the cat dead in her shower. It's all bleeding everywhere. But when she goes and shows them, look, I've been scratched, Barrett... Thinks she's mutilating herself. Thinks she's doing it to herself. And he says, what if you're being fooled? And she says, what if you're being fooled, right? And she's really pissed off because she's like, I laid you to rest. Why are you still here? 
she's pissed off. She's pissed off that the spirit is still there, that it possessed this cat and attacked her, that Barrett doesn't believe her. She's really pissed off. And so she decides to just give in to the spirit and give it what it wants. What it wants is to do her. (laughs) And so Tanner allows the ghost to have sex with her. And this is where she gets possessed. During this time, the machine shows up in a giant box. He brought as much as he could with him, but this machine that he just invented is way too big. It gets shipped there in a giant crate, and he's putting it together at this point. Tanner comes down. This is when he has the confrontation with Fisher. Fisher and Barrett are are going at it against each other, too, because Fisher won't let his guard down. He won't use his psychic ability, and Barrett says, Deutsch is wasting his money. A third of the money that he's paying, this $300,000 or whatever it is, is going to waste. And Barrett's also not really happy with Fisher in addition to that, because earlier he sees Anne trying to seduce Fisher again. And Fisher's obviously not going for it, and Barrett can see that. But there's this whole thing where Anne's like... I don't know what's happening. I don't know why it's happening. Can you forgive me? No, she says, I know what I was doing, but at the same time, I don't understand what's happening to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's now this this conflict between Dr. Barrett and Anne as well. And And he kind of blames Fisher for it a little bit, even though it's not Fisher's fault. Yeah, he says that to Fisher. He's like, you should have told me after the first time. And and Fisher goes, no, your wife should should have have told told you. you. Yep. She walked in her sleep. Yes. You should have told me. No, Doctor, she should have. The fact that she didn't... Whatever it is that's getting at your wife has already gotten to Miss Tanner and to you, or perhaps you haven't noticed. I've noticed quite a number of things, Mr. Fisher. One of which is that you're blocking yourself off completely. And another thing is that Mr. Deutsch is obviously wasting a third of his money. But Barrett is very understanding with his wife, and he says, it'll pass after we've left the house. I love you. Yeah. I know it's just this house that's doing it to you. So Fisher gets attacked... While they're arguing over this machine, and then Tanner shows up eventually, and she's asked, she asks, what is it? And he's like, oh, this is what's going to dispel all the spiritual energy in here um, so we can clean this house. And she's like, oh, interesting. And then she just attacks the thing and tries to break it. She totally fails and ends up running into the, the chapel that she avoided before and tries to – apparently what she is doing is trying to warn the spirits that Barrett has this machine and is going to destroy them. And when she tries to break the machine, Barrett takes that as, see, she she knows that she's wrong and she doesn't want to be proved yeah, wrong. Yeah, otherwise, why would she be worried? But in the in reality, she's concerned that he's going to kill a bunch of ghosts that, that don't have deserve personalities to die. And, yeah, uh-huh. So... Again, possessed by this Daniel figure, she runs into the, the the chapel, and the crucifix just falls on her, crushing her. And before it does, she says, you tricked me, you tricked us all. And we hear laughter. And she writes in her own blood a bee with a circle in it. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows what that's about. What could that possibly be about? Could it be about Barrett? Could it be about Daniel Belasco, the son of Belasco, who uh, lied to her? Like, what is this actually about? So he uses the machine. He uses the machine and it seems to work. And Fisher's like, oh, my God, I don't sense anything. This house is clear. This house is clear. (laughs) 
This house is clean. And then all of a sudden, all the activity starts up again. Well, only in the chapel. Barrett says, I do not accept this. Of course you don't. You haven't accepted anything this entire movie. Right. And Barrett gets crushed to death. So now the only two people that are left are Fisher and Anne. And Fisher tries to get Anne to leave. And she says, I'm not leaving. I have to go into the chapel. Like, I have to know what happened. And Fisher tries to tell her, this cannot be solved. You're going to die. And she says, then I will. Yeah. So they go into the chapel. This is when Fisher comes to a realization. The B for Belasco. That's what it means. It stands for Belasco, and it doesn't refer to Daniel or David or whoever it is, Belasco. It stands for the patriarch, Belasco. It's all him. It's always been him. It's always been him. There's never been guests. He's never even had any guests. Everything you've ever heard about Belasco has been a story that's been made up because he couldn't stand to... For people to find out what his real secret is. This giant of a man, what could his secret possibly be? And so he yells at Blasco's spirit. Which is trying to blow him away. Yes. He's like, ah, I figured it out. I know what it is. So Barrett gets crushed to death by a chandelier and it crushes his legs. And when the cross fell on the girl... It crushed her legs and the and two of the other people who survived but also went crazy. One of them was paralyzed for the rest of their lives. Uh-huh. And like another one was also something happened to legs and he puts it together and he realizes legs. You're jealous of legs because the truth is. What size were you, Velasco? He makes fun of the spirit with this, not because he thinks it's funny that he's short, but because he knows that Belasco cannot stand to reckon with the fact that he was a short man. And they find this out by the the thing gets the spirit gets so mad that it shatters the stained glass window that's in the chapel. And reveals that there's a room behind it. And Anne and him go in. And it's made out of lead. And he realizes you knew what was coming. You knew that something like Barrett's machine was going to be made. And you created this to encapsulate yourself so that you couldn't be killed. Yeah. Yeah. And. Which I guess means that everyone's right. Somehow. Yeah, a little bit. There, yeah, so we see the body of Emmerich Belasco sitting in a chair, stone-faced and still. That is Michael Goff. Michael Goff played, among other things, Alfred Pennyworth in the Batman series. <laughs> he is Alicia Silverstone's Batgirl's uncle. <laughs> Which is totally not the story of Batgirl, but whatever. 
that's mainly what he's known for. He's been in other movies. He was in Top Secret as well as the Doctor. So he plays this one cameo role. He's not even credited. And when Anne's like, what's going on? What are you talking about? Fisher pulls out a knife and just fucking stabs the dude in the leg. And she's like, <gasps> like she, he's dead. What's going to happen? <laughs> and he reveals, he cuts open the pants and, and tears them open and reveals the fact that he had wooden legs. Because he had his legs cut off. Yes, because they were too short. He couldn't stand it. And his own vanity forced him to cut his own legs off and replace them with these fake legs so he can have this towering giant height. Do you see, listeners, why I hate this ending? That's how vain he was. That's what this entire thing, this great movie, has been leading up to. Yeah, he's he's been... And that's how Fisher knew to combat him is against his vanity and make him so angry that he couldn't focus on actually attacking them. And that's what happens. It is a crazy weak ending. So Fisher and Anne turn the machine back on because – and Barrett explained this earlier. He says the house is like a battery. It's just storing up all of this energy. And what we're doing with this machine is basically keeping it on all night and draining the battery. That's what's going to happen until it's dead and it doesn't have any of this energy left over. And the reason it worked before, kind of, cleaned out the house is because he was forced to retreat behind the chapel in this lead room. Now that there is that the chapel isn't closed off anymore, they turn the machine back on and it's actually going to get rid of Belasco's spirit. And they walk out and the cat passes in front of the... Again, the cat's alive? I wrote that down. Wait, wait, the cat's alive? (laughs) Because we found the cat dead. I'm totally cool with that, but apparently more than one cat, I guess. Why you would do that, I don't know. And then that's it. That's credits. It's done. It's over. That's the end of the movie. It just ends like that. Interesting that this all takes place, like, climax takes place on December 24th. It's Christmas Eve and nobody even mentions Christmas. So, Kelsey, lightning round. I don't have anything. I mean, I like the twist of Belasco being mostly a legend. and that That's why it's called the legend of Hell House. I didn't even mean for that, but that's what I wrote. <laughs> but then I wrote, but wait, Fisher wins because he guessed the dude's height? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, like, this movie is very well made. That's just the way he attacks his vanity. It's the vanity that's important, not the height. It's not, oh, he's short and that's how I win. It's that he's so vain and so I need to attack his vanity. And that just happens to be what he's vain about. I don't think we should put so much stock in the short thing. But it's very enjoyable until the ending. Yeah. I think it's really well made. I think the, sh- I think the direction is great. The acting is great. It's very, very good. Yeah. There's this really great shot when Fisher and Barrett are arguing. They're having this conversation, and it's kind of filmed at another low angle, a little bit of a – I can't remember if it was Dutch or not. And it's kind of zoomed in really close on their faces, and Barrett's once taking up one side of the frame and Fisher's taking up the other side of the frame. It's just obviously staged and blocked in a way to look interesting and probably wouldn't happen in real life. It was just so visually appealing and – really effective in communicating like the actual conflict between these two men. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say this movie is very tense. 
It's yeah. not necessarily scary, but it's very tense. Yeah, totally. There is a quote at the beginning of the movie that we didn't mention from Tom Corbett, clairvoyant and psychic consultant to European royalty. <laughs> That's how they refer to him. I have no idea if he's real or not. Although the story of this film is fictitious, the events depicted involving psychic phenomena are not only very much within the bounds of possibility, but could well be true. (laughs) Thanks. You've convinced me, Tom. (laughs) But it's, you know, puts you in the mindset that, hey, we're all going to treat this like it's real. Nobody's going to assume that it's not. Yes. And I think that was very effective. And I think more horror movies that involve hauntings should just do that. It's probably why I like the... Insidious. Yeah. And uh, the Warren movie, The Conjuring. Yeah, because... Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Because they just bring in these experts who know what they're talking about. It's also in Poltergeist. Where it's like, no, this shit's real. We're going to deal with it. I like that. I like it a lot. So, with that in mind, Kelsey... What do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? There are 20 reviews. I'm going to say 72. 60%. Okay. It doesn't even have anything on Metacritic or CinemaScore. I'm not as surprised about CinemaScore. What would you give it? Well, first of all, overrated or underrated? Underrated for sure. What would you give it? I'm going to give it a – I'm going to give it – a 79. Really? I really like this movie. I just, if it was, if it had a better ending, it would be in the 80s. I hate the ending. I think it's super disappointing, but I just, I love the shots. I was, I kept saying that throughout. I was yeah. like, look at that shot. It's very well made. And it didn't run out of money and then go absolutely bonkers as a result like Ghostkeeper did. They didn't do a poor job hiding the fact that they had a low budget like like the children did. It's just very well made throughout. You just don't like that ending, huh? I hate that ending. And I mean, the acting is really good. They take yeah. it very seriously, which yeah. I love. And I love Haunted House movies. Anyone who's listened to this show knows that by now. Yep. Yeah, it's just that ending ruins it. I'll give it a straight 80. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. I I, I was very surprised. And you totally got, got me pegged when you said, I think you'll like this. And I was like, what is it about this that she thinks I'll like? And no, I really did. Very well directed. Great atmosphere. Well acted. Interesting characters. Nothing really crazy cliche about it, an ending that you can't predict, even if you're like, eh, it's just all Blasco. Like, <laughs> you know, and it may seem kind of, what, he's short, but it's not like, that doesn't make any sense. No, yeah, it makes sense. It's just a boring way to end it. Yeah, and, and it ends really abruptly, too. They turn on the machine, they walk out, ending. It's a big letdown. I was expecting some sort of... I guess you could call him yelling at the wind a battle, but yeah, <laughs> it's uh-huh. not really. He gets like pushed back <laughs> and he's fighting against it. And I kind of like that. Fucking love Roddy McDowell in this. I wish there was more like outsmarting him or something yeah. as opposed to just yelling, you're short, <laughs> dickhead, <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> All right, Kelsey, that was 1973's The Legend of Hell House. And before we get to Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition, I think there's a few things that we need to uh, discuss since the last time we recorded. Oh, okay. There's a few horror-based things that we need to talk about. 
Okay. First of all, we watched through all of you and Kelsey live tweeted it. It's on Netflix right now. Apparently it's a lifetime series. Yes. This film, this series tricked me into watching a CW relationship drama because that's what it is. It's about this creepy stalker murderer. It's from his perspective and it's about him trying to get the girl of his dreams. It's really good. It's really good. And every time you think it's trying to make you sympathize with the main character, it pulls something where it's like, no, this dude is fucked. And it's a great metaphor for a lot of relationship stuff. And like it, I said this to you, it's a show that has a lot to say. It has a lot to say it doesn't necessarily execute on those points very well because you could confuse it for for being like well is it really apologizing for having abusive controlling uh boyfriends like is it really really saying you should put up with it because of true love but you're right it's not but but i could see people getting that there's too many of us (laughs) <laughs> I want him to win. <laughs> right? This is what I was talking about with other movies where it's like you're rooting for the bad guy, like with New Year's Evil, where it just focuses so much and you see so much from the bad guy's point of view that you start to sympathize with them and you start to wonder, how is he going to get out of this? It's like Phantom for me. Yeah. It totally made me And Phantom, Phantom is, is abusive. It is. Holy shit. It is Phantom. Yeah. It's Phantom without the music. It's with writing instead. <laughs> I Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I love Phantom. About how he's killing people who's getting in the way of the two of them and her writing and how he's a, he's a creepy stalker who's been watching her without <laughs> her knowledge. And yeah, wow. I wouldn't, but after just, having... Just like in Phantom, I want them to end up together. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I don't know if, based on the premise, I was like, ooh, this sounds really creepy and good. It's really, really more psychological than it is horror. I yeah. wouldn't call it a psychological horror. Uh, if you're a horror fan, you may like it, but I was surprised by just how much relationship bullshit is in this movie. There's like two episodes <laughs> where it basically drops everything with uh-huh. him being a stalker. It's just about a shitty relationship. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's like poignant. It's real. And they have real relationship problems, but it's all couched in him being a psychopath. Yes. That was one thing we watched. Another thing we watched was Bird Box. Which is, it's, this is the way I described it. It's horror for moms. Not to, (laughs) not to make, not to, I don't mean for that to sound dismissive. I think there's a lot of people out here that really like this movie and I can see why. And it has stuff to say about parenthood and being a mom and... And, and being a fighter, but maybe is that making you connect less with your children? And it has all this to say. It's not that deep, though. And it's a really simple premise, and there's tons of holes in it. Oh, my God. It's completely unbelievable. That's kind of the biggest thing for me. I don't understand how so many people love this movie because it blew up. I liked it better when it was about hearing and it was The Quiet Place. I love, yeah. I don't love, but I liked A Quiet Place a lot. Yeah. And everyone the, is I didn't like this. the ending of A Quiet Place. <laughs> it was a little bit too much like there's a moment in it that's just like, oh, God. <laughs> but in this, 
I thought the ending was clever, but it was kind of sappy and a little bit too oh, very sappy. good happy ending. And it's it's completely impossible. I don't understand because they so- need to get around a lot with blindfolds, and they show that it's difficult. But I still, I mean, but I said this while we were watching the movie. I was like, you know, blind people get around, but these people are not people who have lived their entire life with this. A challenge and so they they have to learn to overcome it in a very short amount of time plus the way the story is structured it takes out all the mystery like all of it because it's two plots it's her and the two kids and they need to get to this place that might be a refuge where there are more people they hear a, a communication just like in a zombie movie and they need to get there very 28 days later yeah and then it's the rest of the movie intercut with that is flashbacks to how she got to that point. And it's like, well, I know she's alone with these two kids. Well, I know she survives through half of this plot. It's trying to be like two stories together at the same time. But one of them is not tense at all because I know exactly how it ends. (laughs) And it is interesting in a how did we get here kind of way. But when they're trying to get you invested in certain people, you're like, well, they're going to fucking die anyway. Like, And they don't really even have that big of an impact, all the people that die, on who she is and how she feels. And maybe we're asking for too much out of a horror movie. I know a lot when we have conversations like this, we get into, like, the personification of characters. Like, like how how do they represent real humans and how humans react? It's a big focus of ours, and we're really interested in the social relationships and the psychology behind things. And sometimes less so the horror. But I wanted that out of this. And the horror isn't that horrific in the first place. And then all this other stuff, I I, I don't know why it's so popular. <laughs> I don't know. Of course, Netflix could just be lying because they never release no, no, no. actual figures. It is all over Facebook. I can't escape it. Right. But how many people are just jumping on the memes and haven't actually watched the memes the are hilarious. The memes are really good. <laughs> stupid to the point where Netflix had to come out and say, stop the fucking bird box challenge. We don't want to be held responsible for somebody getting hurt or dying because you're acting like idiots. Because it's completely impossible. Thank you, Netflix. Well, it's people running headlong into walls wearing blindfolds. Anyway, bird box. Are we missing something here? Is there something you really liked about the movie? Did you really attach yourself to the the matriarchal drama behind the core elements of this movie like that didn't resonate for me or for Kelsey? Let us know. I want to know what you thought about Bird Box. So that said, moving on, we're going to talk about 2018's. No, we're not. That said, before we talk about our next movie, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Sorry, babe. It's another hard one. God damn it. Who composed the musical score for 1979's Amityville Horror? No idea. Lalo Schifrin. Huh. Lalo Schifrin did the score for the Amityville Horror, apparently. Fine. I could have given you an easy one. I'm not gonna now. I can't help which ones have to do with the movies we've seen oh this is the one i wanted to ask you actually okay so it's a middle of the road one i i know this one i could name this person oh i'm just saying i forget names and i know this 
Who directed The Conjuring 2013? Oh. Same guy who directed the Insidious movies. James Wan. Yeah. And Saw and Aquaman, which we haven't seen yet, but I still really want to. We're going to. Because it looks nuts, and I love how just off-the-wall wild it is, and... James Wan looks like he has a really good influence on the DC universe, so I really want to see what comes of this. I'm going to see it because... Patrick Wilson is in it. Because it's a James Wan movie, Patrick Wilson is in it. He plays the Ocean Master. So I have to see it because I love Patrick Wilson. Aquaman's brother, the Ocean Master. Patrick Wilson (laughs) is my, like, dad kind of crush. Like, he never looks... He is dope as fuck. I love Patrick Wilson. He never looks like he's young. (laughs) never looks like he's like super in shape but i just love his face and he always plays good characters yes really really early on he might have been a perpetual that guy but he really really broke out of it uh by people just being like i want to know this guy's name same thing cannot be said for jason clark who stars in our next movie 2018 (laughs) winchester directed by Michael and Peter Spirig, also known as the Spirig Brothers. They are two twins. It was written by the Spirig Brothers along with Tom Vaughn. It stars Dame Helen Mirren, Sarah Snook, Finn Skikluna Opre, and that guy, Jason Clark. Australia's own Jason Clark. What is Winchester about, Kelsey? It's about kind of a semi-true story of a woman who, by all counts, although Chris doesn't believe it, and we'll get into that later. It's just, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if, but we'll get there. <laughs> she went crazy, and she, the it's called Winchester because she was married to the man who was in charge, who owned the Winchester Rifle Company, um, and she went crazy thinking that the ghosts that were killed by the Winchester Rifle We're haunting her. So she builds this elaborate house um, that makes no sense for these ghosts to be in. And the Winchester company believes that she's gone crazy. So they hire. Well, they hope that she's gone crazy. So they can get because she owns half of the company. Right. And so they send in a therapist to check her out and see if she has. And. Shit goes south from there. She didn't. She's not. So <laughs> there, there's there. There be ghosts. Yes, absolutely. Should people watch this movie? No, no. It actually okay. So it has really bad reviews, right? Right, but like, say what you're gonna say. I think I agree with you. It has a pretty solid beginning. It I was, really does. I was sitting here and I was like. Fuck the reviews. Like, this is actually not bad. Exactly. I was like, this is actually kind of an okay movie. (laughs) And then the middle starts to get, eh. And then, ooh, the bad. Oh, my God. The last. Third. Third, yeah. The last third of the movie is just, what? Where did this go? It just goes off the wall. It. And it just loses everything about it that made the rest of the movie so intriguing and thrilling and actually pretty okay. And it just abandons all of that for, like, action ghosts. And, (laughs) oh. And Dame Helen Mirren gets her own action scene in it. And it's like, uh, what, what is happening? Helen, 
I said in our last episode, Helen Mirren is Bay, and she still is, but like, and and halfway through this movie, I was like, why doesn't she sound right? And I was like, oh, I think maybe I really don't like her American accent. <laughs> what is happening in this movie? You've you've gotten a poor performance out of Helen Mirren? Like, you don't need to watch it. Because you, too, will probably be like, well, I kind of like this, and then be as disappointed as we were. Yep. Instead, let us talk to you about it, which we will do in just a moment. When we get back, we will talk about 2018's Winchester. Mrs. Winchester, it's a pleasure to finally meet you. Based on a true story. I must say, I have never quite seen a house like this. Set in a real house. Do you believe in ghosts, Dr. Price? About a real woman. I do not believe in anything I cannot see or study. Helen Mirren. There's a wickedness in this house. Jason Clark. It has found us. Winchester. It's quite a special house, is it not? Maybe PG-13. Kelsey. Yes. Tell me what you know about the Winchester Mystery House. Just in general? Just in general. You've been there before. I, I did go when I was a kid, yeah. Uh, as far as I remember, it was a very cool house to walk through. Uh, you get to go on a tour. And what I remember them telling me is she went crazy and believed that the house was haunted. And the reason that she kept building on top of it and everything was to confuse the ghosts and make them kind of get trapped. This movie takes it in a slightly different direction than that but effectively the same kind of story why were there ghosts there i don't remember what they told me but according to this movie this is the story i know they are all the dead people that have been killed by winchesters over time yes she feels guilt over her husband's company and he died at a very young age heart failure or something like that and he had inherited the Winchester company, so it wasn't even, like, his thing. But he died in his, like, his 30s or something like that. And they had a daughter, and the daughter died, like, eight years prior or some extended amount of time. This movie makes it sound like they happened around the same time. Yes. Or maybe even that she lost her daughter after she lost her husband, which I... It was weird. It was really weird the way they set that up. But that's not the case at all. But people argue that she was distraught by all the premature deaths in her immediate family. And she was left alone. And she was taken advantage of by a medium who told her that the reason she's so disturbed is that her house is filled with ghosts. And they are the victims of Winchester rifles. And they're here because your family is responsible for that. Your husband's family is. And... Your job is to uh, keep building this house and build it in such a way that they can't move freely around it and take it over, basically. So that's the story. It is located in San Jose, California, which is in the Bay Area. It was purchased by another company when Sarah died in like 1922. Sarah is Helen Mirren's character. Everything she had was given to her niece? Her niece, Marion, who we see in this movie, 
she put everything up for sale that she didn't want to keep herself and kept no record. So we have no idea other than the architecture what the inside of the house actually looked like. So when you go to it, what you're getting is just like people's best guess based on recreations of furniture at the time or what have you. And it was bought pretty quickly. A year after she died. And pretty quickly. immediately. It became a, a tourist spot. Yes. So since... The 20s, there's been this legend growing. So who knows how much of it was the truth or how much of it has been almost a 100 years of myth built up over time so people could sell tickets to this house. Yes. We just do not know. (laughs) But this is the story that the movie takes at face value. So the company that owns the house also owns – all the rights to it being filmed or photographed or what have you. People would sneak in and videotape stuff, and they basically now say when you go there, you can't take any pictures. Like, they're very, very secretive. So it was kind of nuts that they were allowed to actually film the real property and on the real property, but most of this movie is on a soundstage. Because it was built in such weird ways and because it has, you know, there's before the ADA, so there are cramped hallways and and corners and stairs and stuff like that, it made it virtually impossible to actually film in. What I specifically remember, like the two things that really stand out the most in my memory are the stairs that lead to a ceiling. Which we see and play a very important role in this movie. Yes, but I do remember that from my childhood. I remember not being afraid But being very, like, what was wrong with this woman? And I do remember there being a door that when you opened it, there was a wall behind it. Yeah. It's built on 162 acres. Originally, it has, this is kind of crazy, but it has 161 rooms, 40 bedrooms, two ballrooms, Uh, 47 fireplaces, over 10,000 panes of glass, 17 chimneys, potentially more, these remnants of of more than that, two basements, three elevators. Uh, It was absolutely nuts. Gold and silver chandeliers, parquet floors and trim, uh, tons and tons of different materials it was actually made out of. And this all kind of lends to my theory Not even a theory, but potential explanation for everything, uh, which we'll discuss later. The stairs are really weird, which they mention in the movie, and it's because of her arthritis. She couldn't lift her legs very high, and so all the stairways were actually four-inch risers as opposed to your standard stair height, which is why the one you see in the movie curves like that, because it has to put like twice as many stairs as you would normally see. From all of that, there was only one working toilet in the entire place. There are other restrooms, but they all do not function. Explanation is they are decoys used to confuse the spirits. (laughs) Uh, She also apparently slept in a different room each night. It included things like uh, forced air heating, uh, gas lights, indoor plumbing, and all of that, which were like crazy modern conveniences. There's also an elevator that, because they had tons of space, is powered by what they call a horizontal hydraulic elevator piston. Horizontal pistons, they function much better 
than the vertical ones that you see in most places. Most places have vertical pistons because they don't have a lot of space. But because she had tons of space, she installed a horizontal piston to make the elevators much more efficient. So, like, she knew what she was doing. She knew what she was getting. It was the best of the best. It was top of the line at the time. It's crazy advanced. But the layout and all the stuff that's going on and all the crazy different materials and all of that is just nonsense throughout. There are two stained glass windows. Do you remember these from the movie? With the inscriptions? Yes. Yeah, and we didn't understand what they meant. They are. Wide unclasp the tables of their thoughts is one, and the other is these same thoughts people this little world. Which, when you say it out loud, starts to make sense as an actual sentence. The first one, Wide Unclasp the Tables of Their Thoughts, comes from Troilus and Cressida, Act 4, Scene 5. It refers to Cressida's somewhat flirtatious nature. Wide Unclasp the Tables of Their Thoughts. These same thoughts people this little world is from Richard II, Act 5, Scene 5. This is talking about when Richard is imprisoned And his entire world is only made up with what's going on in his mind. These same thoughts people this little world. That's what people meaning populate this little world. Like that's all that's there. Why she chose these? No idea. And you can come (laughs) to your own conclusions. But it's just weird and interesting shit like that. So – Now that we're through the primer on what the Winchester Mystery House is, what happens in this fucking movie? (laughs) We open on people building the house because, as they explain, the building never stops. It is a 24-hour process. They are constantly building, tearing down, and rebuilding. And who is the primary, like, team lead? I don't know his name, but he is from... The James Wan movies. He's in Insidious. Or maybe just that one. Angus Sampson is his name. He's the, He plays the big dude in Insidious, Tucker. But he's also a character in the Fargo TV series. Oh, yeah. He's one of the brothers. Yeah. He's the doctor in Mad Max Fury Road. Um, what, who they call the organic mechanic. He's the one who delivers the baby. Pretty cool dude. I like him a lot in what I see him in. He's a lot of fun. And he plays a pretty sizable role in this one. He's effectively like the man that she keeps around and becomes like the stoic doer of things. (laughs) We see Lady Winchester walking around all in black. She basically just wears all black all the time. Yeah, because she's in mourning. That's right. Over all the deaths. Oh, yes. Yeah, her husband, her her child, and the deaths of all the victims. We see a child who we end up finding out his name is Henry. He wakes up and wanders out into the hallway. The mom goes after him, and she finds him standing on those stairs that I described that lead to nowhere, and he is wearing a sack on his head. And when she takes the sack off, he has bright crystal blue eyes, And he says he is coming for us. He is coming for us. Bum, bum, bum. Cut to... What's his name? Clark? 
<laughs> Jason Clark. Jason Clark. We find out that he is a laudanum junkie. Because he's a doctor and it takes place in, what, the late 1800s, early 1900s. So, like, I think it's the early 1900s. So, like, yeah, of course. <laughs> because the movie's not original. He has a bunch of prostitutes in his home. And he explains that fear is all in your mind. And this will be a thing that he says multiple times for the rest of the movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> and all it does through the entire – and they say it so often. All In case it you forgot. <laughs> yeah. All it does is just set him up to be wrong. That's all it's about. They're not making a point at all. They could be making a point about how you need to conquer your fear because the fear is in your mind. The danger may be real, but the fear is in your mind. And he never even really makes that point. It's all just like <laughs> fear is imaginary. Get over it. But it's like the danger could be real. What the <laughs> fuck? Somehow that's an, that's attached to the fact that there might be ghosts and they might be imaginary. But there's no direct connection made between these two thoughts other than he doesn't believe in ghosts. But the fear is in your mind. And then ultimately, oh, the ghosts are real. The danger's real. I'm afraid. And like, no, po what's the point? What point are you making, movie? If you say it over and over and over again, what's the point? None. There isn't one. <laughs> Don't look for one. Uh, he is called upon by one of the heads for the Winchester Company. He explains everything we just explained to you about Lady Winchester. And he basically says, we want you to go in there and find out if she has gone insane. But he does say that it's been 20 years that she has been expanding on this house. Why did they wait all this time to check her out right. and find out if she's insane or not? So... There is no such person as Dr. Eric Price. He does not exist. The company sending him to evaluate her is not a true story. That is the conceit of the movie. But they don't really make it clear where the line is drawn between what's what's actually historical and what's not. And so when such a core element of the plot is not real, like I could take all the individual items not being real and it's like, hey, what what if kind of thing. But when the core premise of this doctor coming to evaluate her isn't real, I I can't take anything you say for granted. Well, yeah, none of this movie is real. Yeah. It's just the premise. That's all it is. Right. But you find that out and it's like, oh, well, so like all of this is just made up. Fiction. Yep. Yep. All of it is. He says he doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to go all the way to San Jose. And they ask, and he asks him, how much do you owe? All the way to San Jose, by the way, he's in San Francisco. <sighs> he is a fake person. <laughs> he does not exist. You can put him anywhere. He could be in New York. That's a really long way to go to get to San Jose. You know what's not a really long distance, even in the early 1900s? <laughs> San Francisco to San Jose. There's We call it the Bay Area because it's just on the other side of the fucking bay. Do you know the way to San Jose? Yeah. You can probably walk there in a couple weeks. Like, anyway. come on. So he says that he owes 300 and they say that they'll pay six. I don't know if he meant 300,000. Right. Just $300. It's really unclear. 
And I mean, I get that it's the early 1900s and $300 was probably worth a fuck ton back then, but it doesn't seem that much. I don't Let know. me see. Let me see. In 1900, $100 is about $3,000 today. How much? 3000 from 100 So if they're talking $300 he wants, he's asking for an equivalent of $9,000. And they're going to give him $18,000. Oh, okay. Really? You see that place he has? <laughs> Come on. It costs way more than that. <laughs> Just a year. Like, no, he needs to be making... They gotta be talking about thousands, right? I I don't know. It doesn't matter. So, he goes, and he comes into the house, and he meets... What's her name first? The niece. Marion Marriott. No relation to the hotel. And with a weird name like that, it's no surprise that she goes by the name Daisy. <laughs> she never used the name Marion, even though they don't mention that in this movie. And she had no son. She did adopt a daughter at one point, but she had no son. Okay. She tells him he's going to have to follow Lady Winchester's rules, which include not drinking before dinner time. Because she can already smell that he's been drinking. A plot element that goes nowhere other than the fact that she has strict rules. No, it's meant to tell us that she recognizes alcoholism because her husband was an alcoholic. Sure, but she can. She has a better sense of smell than me. Like, okay, where does that go? Other than continuing to prod him to not do what she can't even smell on him. The fucking laudanum or whatever it is mm -hmm. like she anyways she hounds him like about this throughout the movie until he finally uh, until she finally just takes it away from him at one point and he's forced to go through withdrawals while he is in his room getting ready for dinner the mirror keeps moving um and at one point you can see somebody and then you can see like a face and this is the very first flaw that i really Started like, noticing. Started noticing. Uh, this is a PG-13 movie. Yeah. Which very rarely creates a good horror movie. It's pretty rare to have a PG-13 movie these days because now it actually means yeah, something. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and so that that tells you right off the bat. They're going to be compromises. All right? the scares are jump scares. They really are. And I actually like jump scares, but I don't like when that's your sole, per like, your sole way of making me afraid. Right. It's going to wear off real fast. Right. The occasional one, I'm actually totally okay with. I know some people hate all of them, but I think they're fine. But th that's all this movie can use because it's PG-13. And this dude, throughout the movie, Dr. Price, Jason Clark, he'll see stuff throughout the movie and he'll chalk it up to the fact that he... Is on laudanum. He's not on laudanum. He's going through laudanum withdrawals. That's the explanation for everything. And it just, it keeps happening to him over and over and over again. And there keeps being a new excuse to rationalize it away. Exactly. Uh, so he goes down to dinner and he starts talking to the son and he learns some things about the father, but we don't learn until later that he was an alcoholic and wasn't a great husband or a great father and ended up dying. 
And he says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pry. That and didn't the, happen, by the way. That's not real. <laughs> and the niece says, of course you meant to pry. That's why you're here. Henry, you must be very excited to spend some time in your great aunt's house. We're here because father died. Well, I am very sorry for your loss, young man. I'm not. Henry. It's my fault. I didn't mean to pry. Of course you did. That's why you're here. Yes. We're told from the get-go that I don't necessarily know that the niece believes in ghosts, but she trusts and loves her aunt and doesn't like the fact that people are saying she's crazy. Yes. Daisy, as she actually went by, was actually Sarah's secretary for a long time until in the late aughts, I guess, she quit that job. But yeah, she was in her employee. Like, they were close. And Sarah comes to dinner. We find out that she chose him. Yes. Because I was asking questions, because they're, again, really unclear about this. I was asking questions from the get-go that's like, if you can choose anybody, why choose somebody that's so off the wall like this guy is? Why would they choose this guy? You could pick any shady fucking psychiatrist to to write her off as crazy and get exactly what you want for way cheaper than you're paying this guy. It's like, oh, it makes more sense when you find out that she chose him. That was like her terms. But even then, I was like, why would she choose this random guy? And then it's at the very end that you find out. Yes, and and we'll get to that when we actually get to that point in the story. But... It makes a lot more sense where they're like, okay, well, he's obviously desperate and a degenerate. We'll just try to buy our way out of this situation and and pay for the diagnosis we want, which is she's crazy and we can kick her off the board. Around this time when we finally get to see Helen at the table, I was a little dismayed. I thought that Helen was uh, overacting a little bit. Yeah. And that kind of continues for the rest of the movie. American accent is not good. Yeah. It's all right. (laughs) I hope everything has been to your satisfaction so far. Then later, uh, the kid again is walking around with the bag on his head. And he ends up walking out and almost dying. He walks off a ledge. Eric Price had been walking around. Not because he can't sleep. But because they had been, like, locking him in his room. And or expecting that that he would stay in his room and not... Go poking around. There are areas of the place he wasn't allowed to look at, places he wasn't allowed to go. And so he was, like, sneaking around, and he ends up catching this boy and saving his life. But as a result, both of them are heretofore relegated to their rooms and and locked in there and watched. But let's – there's some other things that happen here. Uh So when the kid – take when they take off the bag off his head, he still has those blue eyes again. Uh And he says, I see you. I see you. Which, when you find out who that character is, Uh makes no sense. Makes no sense. But we'll get there. He then has a conversation with Helen Mirren, and she says, you need clarity. If if you're going to believe what's happening here, you can't be on your drugs. And so then he is confined to quarters, as Well, Chris this said. is also when we get the story about how he has died before. It's revealed that he was killed, he was shot, and he died for three minutes before being revived. And he refurbished the bullet that killed him. You kept it and refurbished it. I did. Why? 
Well, because it's a reminder of my past. Because it's my connection to death. The wall that I've lost. Instruments of death have a powerful connection to the afterlife. Meaning... It's now a working bullet that he keeps on his person. He doesn't just keep the actual slug. He keeps the casing and everything. And it's basically a working bullet. It's a rifle cartridge. Can you see where this is going? (laughs) But he keeps it on his person at all times. Immediately, my first thought was, well, that bullet's going to be really important. It's going to save the day at the last minute. And he's going to actually use it in a real gun. (sighs) yes that all happens (laughs) exactly what you think is going to happen happens no surprises here totally predictable Mm -hmm. but continue so he's in his bedroom and the bells go off at midnight and he opens up his door and there is a butler standing outside of his room and he says why are the bells going off and he says well it's midnight and he goes yeah But they don't go off at any other time. Why are they going off at midnight? And he just says, it's midnight, sir. You tell me why the uh, bells chime at midnight? It's midnight, sir. Well, yes, but is there any significance to it? It's midnight, sir. And then we see Helen Mirren walking around in her all black shit again. Uh And he can't help himself and he escapes through the window. Now, I'd like to point out that throughout this scene, it really bothered me. There are candles fucking everywhere on this set. Yeah. You know what else is on this set? Electricity. Electricity. Yeah. Why? Why do you have candles everywhere? Well, they also had push-button gas lamps, too. They wouldn't be lighting candles everywhere. Mm -hmm. They had multiple forms of technology to make lighting actually useful. And they wouldn't be using candles. (laughs) It is purely aesthetics. Yes. And I have a problem with that. He comes across her in in what is what we find out to be her drawing room where she literally draws and she never closes the door. He sees her more than once because the door is cracked open. But she is doing what we talk about in the Rose Red episode is called automatic writing. It's a form of psychic link you make with a ghost or a spirit or whatever, and they use your body to communicate by usually writing something, but you can also be drawing something. In this case, it's architectural plans. And she uses this ability, we find out, to build new rooms on the house to match the places where these ghosts died, so they will go there and she can... Lock them in with 13 nails. Only if they... So she'll go in there and she'll talk to them. Yes, and she'll try to basically appease them and help them move on. Mm -hmm. And if they're difficult spirits, then she'll lock them in with the 13 nails until eventually, it takes time, but eventually they move on too. Very convoluted. (laughs) Yes, but he does find multiple doors down this corridor where all the doors are boarded up in this manner. So... We don't know if these ghosts have moved on or not. They might be still behind these doors. And she knows he was there, but he doesn't reveal himself. Yeah. And he goes back to his room. So the next day, they are having their first therapy session. And he's trying to talk to her about all this stuff that she's going through. But instead, she wants to talk about what he's been through. 
and she asks him, is dying painful? And he eventually, I mean, there's like, you know, a push and for push and pull right here, but eventually he says, yes, then calmness. And then when I came back, it was just as painful. Yeah, it's just pain again. Yeah. Uh, it's a metaphor. Life is pain. <laughs> uh, and then she asks him, did you leave your room last night? And he chooses to be honest. And she says, thank you for being honest. Because he's been lying to her a bunch mm-hmm. this whole time. And then she finally starts to tell him all this stuff that Chris just told you about how she creates the rooms, etc. Uh, eventually he walks outside and he meets the head builder that we talked about earlier. And this is when I wrote, man, I wish I was just watching Insidious. <laughs> yeah. Yep. He is talking to the niece and he finds out that her husband died of tuberculosis and he had the curse of alcohol, as she puts it. Yeah. Long conversation. He ends up, I think he's talking to Helen Mirren when he says this, when he tells how he died. Or is it to the niece? I don't remember, but he doesn't tell all the details. He just how, how oh, would you be willing to die to oh, protect that's right. somebody you love? And, yes, because yeah. she's talking about her son, and she's saying how she would die for her son. And she says, have you ever loved anyone so much you would die for them? And he goes, yes. And she says, what happened? And he says, I did. I did. I, I, I died. Yeah. yeah. I tried to protect her, and I died. And a um, little, little bit more information about how the circumstances of his death. Yes. And I would like to point out throughout this entire film that the editing is really, really bad. Okay. I guess we're going to talk about this now. I have written down here <laughs> this movie breaks the 180 rule like a whole bunch. Now, that's not. That's not strictly an editing problem. It's also a cinematography problem. And it's a script supervisor problem. Like, that's three people who need to be falling down on the job in order to get this wrong. If you don't know what the 180 rule is, imagine two characters are talking and there's a line between them. The camera should stay on the same side of this line the whole conversation, the whole interaction, the whole scene. It shouldn't cross the line except for good reason. Because it's not just some, oh, it's some rule. Because it's disorienting when you fuck it up. And it's hard to tell what's going on and who's where. You can use breaking this rule to great effect if your objective is to be disorienting. But they break the rule in like normal conversation and shit when it's like, wait, no, I really do need to know what the layout of this room is. And you're making it very difficult. It happens throughout. (laughs) There's like simple, basic filmmaking rules that are being broken, which I'm fine with if it's to effect. The only effect of this is it makes the movie worse. <laughs> but also, it'll hold on long it'll hold long shots that like it's just like why am I still watching this? Yeah. Or it'll cut to something and I'll be like what the fuck just happened? Like yeah. it's all over the place. It's very shoddily made. Yeah. So, the last room that she decided to build or she was just drawing is a room that is filled with Winchesters. So in each of the rooms where somebody died that they create, they put the the specific model of the Winchester in there that killed the person. Yeah. And this room, they ask her, which Winchester do you want? And she says, all of all them. All of them, yeah. That doesn't explain why there are bullets in those guns. I wrote down, why do they keep live ammunition in this house? I... 
like, because my first question was, why are there guns in this house if she's so averse to guns? Oh, that's another thing. Yeah, he had to prove that he didn't have any weapons, weapons on, on him. him. When he yeah, came in. Uh-huh. and yeah, they make a point of that, that she does not want guns in the house. And we find out there's guns all over the house, especially in this room. Well, they explain why. Okay, fine. Why is there live ammunition then? What is the fucking point? It's contrived danger. And it's required in order to make the climax happen. <laughs> it is absolutely ridiculous. And it's really, really frustrating that they were forced to do something so contrived. Uh, so Henry, again, the kid becomes uh, possessed by whatever this being is. And he grabs one of the guns and starts shooting at Helen Mirren. Here's the thing, movie. It's way too early in this movie to kill off Lady Winchester. A character which we know, by the way, did not die from exactly. a gunshot wound from her nephew. We know in real life that's not how she died, and we also know that halfway through the film you're not going to kill her. Yes. What is this scene, and why is it in here? Yeah. It is here simply to ramp up the tension, but I'm sorry, it doesn't create any. Not for me, anyway. No, you're right. <laughs> so... They eventually disarm the kid, and the head builder guy has grabbed the gun, and he keeps, like, pointing it at the kid. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I understand he just tried to kill Helen Mirren, but the kid obviously is now disarmed. Why are you pointing a gun at a child? Yeah, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He's possessed. (laughs) Helen Mirren asks him, who are you? Because whenever he talks... And he's got those crystal blue eyes. He has this demonic voice. Yeah. Which also makes zero sense when Uh you find out who the character is. Uh, But also, everyone else is just kind of like, you're crazy. What? How is she crazy? Your kid just tried to shoot her. He's got these bizarre looking eyes. And when he talks, he sounds like a demon. And you're telling me Helen Mirren's crazy? Yep. Okay. And so... The doctor is like, this is fucked up. Your son needs to go to a psychiatric hospital. We need to get the hell out of here. And basically, your aunt is nuts too, but we'll take care of her later. But Sarah won't let them leave. Right. She locks them in this room, and she's rushing around with Angus Sampson's character, John Hansen, gathering together all the stuff they need and opening doors and going through secret passageways. And it's like, what are they even doing? Who knows? Uh, They get rid of everyone in the house. So the, the ending can be cleaner. It's completely arbitrary. They just get rid of everybody. Uh, So the only people that are left are Angus Sampson, John Hanson, the older Butler dude, the younger Butler dude. We haven't talked about the younger Butler. He's hardly in this movie at all. And that's a problem. <laughs> we see him occasionally. Our- he has a southern accent. And Kelsey was like, whoa, she, there's a southern dude in this movie? Yes, why? I asked that. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> why would she have a southerner as one of her butlers? Like, It's just California. a random thing. Like, what, what, what an odd acting choice. <laughs> and he is there several times. And there are little things that make it pretty clear. And at some point, should I just say it? Yeah, just say it. At some point, I was like, I wonder if he's not real. And then Chris was like, yeah, he's not real. And then he wasn't real. He's a ghost. Because if you go back through the movie, there are several characters that interact with each other. But this specific character only interacts with Price. And that is it. 
You never see him interacting with somebody else. They try to misdirect you by when he opens the door and asks about midnight and that older butler dude is out there where the this younger southern guy is standing outside against a wall or whatever with that other butler but my immediate question was what were they just standing there in silence does it take two people to watch this door what do these two characters have to talk about like it didn't make any sense to me and they didn't have an explanation. I'm okay with it not making sense if there's a cool explanation potentially, but no, it's just a weak attempt to misdirect and make you think that he's a real character and not have you clue into the fact that he's actually a ghost that only Price can see. I am going to bring up the the first dinner scene where the doctor and Helen Mirren meet for the first time. Yeah. There are two things that make it glaringly obvious that the butler is not real. Both of which Chris and I thought were weird, but we thought they were kind of funny at the same time. Yeah. So we didn't put too much thought into it. The first is the doctor is sitting there and he wants alcohol. And so he just kind of like looks at him like oh, right here, right, yeah. right, right in my cup. Just pour that right in my cup. <laughs> exactly. And the butler kind of gives him a look like not before dinner. Right. Yeah. Now. If you really put thought into it, you'd be like, why wouldn't he just ask? And then you would say, well, because we know that the niece doesn't want him drinking. Okay. But if the butler gave him the alcohol, yeah. she fucking know you're drinking. Right. Yeah. So. If you think about it for two seconds, it doesn't make, it falls apart. Yes. <laughs> and the second thing is, and both Chris and I thought the exact same thing, but Chris said it before I could. Why didn't the butler pull out the chair for Helen Mirren? Yeah. The niece does. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. the butler's not there. Yep. He's not actually there. Anyway, so the people there are Angus Sampson, old butler, young butler who isn't actually real, uh, the niece and her son, Dr. Price, and Sarah Winchester. That's it. That's the only people left. And then they start getting separated. After everything's cleaned out and everyone's gone Helen Mirren comes in with Angus Sampson and they're like, hey, we got to we got to take care of this ghost, you and me. And then you, niece and your son and the butler, you stay here and they lock them in this room for the rest of the movie. These three characters are absolutely inconsequential. If you're asking, well, then why are they in the first part of this movie? That's a good question. <laughs> they could totally not be in this movie at all. And it would be the same movie. <laughs> Dr. Price isn't even romantically linked with her at all, ever, which you would expect. That's probably one of the cliches they avoided. But then, like, what's the point of this character? What do they contribute to this? He's a psychiatrist. He doesn't need excuses to talk about feelings. So it's not like we need her to, to develop his character. Granted, it's nice to have another strong woman character in the movie, but... It's a pointless character that takes up time. And when we're talking about the climax, we spend all the time on her part of the climax. And I'm like, why do we keep cutting back to her? What's, <laughs> why do we, do we even care about her? <laughs> and it's totally inconsequential and nothing comes of it. But, and I'll tell you why it's absolutely ridiculous why they even include it. Because in order to get her out of danger, it's completely convoluted. So anyway, they get separated the nails start coming out the door, which is where I wrote, looks like those nails ain't doing shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Their uh, whole purpose is is pointless. Yes. Uh, and basically, they make it up to this room where 
they they look at newspaper clippings. It's revealed, by the way, that oh my, he's like, why why didn't you tell me this guy he attacked me? Why why do you have this man in your employ? And they're like, you saw him. He's like, yeah, I saw him. He attacked me. Uh, he ain't real. That's the ghost. Did he look like this? And they're like, yeah, that's him. That dude died right after the Civil War. <laughs> He is dead. You've been talking to a dead man. This is Winchester. There is a man in your employee who has clearly lost his mind. He just... That's him. You saw him. You spoke with him. Well, yes, I spoke with him just now. The man threatened you. Read it. Read the paper. Corporal Benjamin Joseph Block was killed during a siege at the Winchester Repeating Arms General Office. That's impossible. This newspaper is 20 years old. Price is like, oh, shit. And they tell the story. <laughs> they tell the story about what happened to this man, Benjamin Block. Oh, my God. Is his backstory dumb as shit? Like he this, was, this infuriated me. I was like, what is this motivation? This movie is bullshit. The, <laughs> they're trying to tie it into her psychosis. So he was a soldier in the Civil War. He fought for the recessionist South. He also fought along with his brothers. Now, all of his brothers died. The explanation being is that the North. Oh, is the explanation that they're in war? Is that the explanation? Is Uh is it that in war people kill each other? But the conclusion that Ben Block came to was the reason the South lost is because the Union was better equipped. They were faster killing machines because they had faster killing machines. Is that also that one side has to win? Yes. Is that what happens in a war? In the form, well, not all the time, in the form of Winchester rifles. So who he wanted to get back at was the Winchester Rifle Company. So he comes into the Winchester Rifle Company one day wearing a burlap sack over his head like we see the kid wearing a bunch whenever he's possessed. And unloads on tons of people and he makes it into this display room like the one that they have here and he's sitting there with a gun and then all the police and guards and shit like that come in and they just light him up and he dies and that's how he died he's a restless spirit he killed a bunch of people he is murderous and vengeful but like he fought in the civil war and he decided that the thing to do was to kill innocent people at the company that made the rifles? I it, it that's they could have written anything. <laughs> but they needed to connect it to her guilt over the rifles. So he needs to blame the rifles. And he's coming and killing anyone still left from the Winchester family. That's why he's coming after them. And so He attacks them, and they're up in this attic room, what's on the other side of that ceiling that the stairs led to, and there's a huge earthquake. Now, this is the earthquake of 1906. It absolutely decimated this property. It was seven stories. After this earthquake, it never got higher than four. So it destroyed the property. According to the History Channel... At history.com, this earthquake killed 3,000 people, destroyed more than 28,000 buildings. It ruptured the San Andreas Fault almost 300 miles. It could be felt from Oregon to L.A. 
and as far inland as Nevada. It was absolutely huge. The movie insinuates this earthquake is caused by the power of the spirit of Ben Block. (laughs) What? (laughs) The earthquake also kills the old butler. Sorry. Nobody actually died on the property in that earthquake. So that's anachronistic as well. In this time, Price makes his way to the garden room. He has one at his own property in San Francisco, and he's really intrigued by this one, but he's, he's not allowed in. He's been obsessed with going in there. There are a bunch of tubes that you communicate through so that you can communicate from one room to another in the house. And the one from the garden room kind of keeps trying to talk to him. In one of the most effective scares and coolest shots in the entire movie, he's like looking into the pipe. Like, what are you expecting to see, dude? But it plants the idea in your head that there that something might be in the pipe. But he hears a voice. He puts his ear up to it. And this like decrepit finger like sticks out of the pipe and reaches out towards him. And it's great because he never sees it. Yeah, he doesn't see it. He doesn't know it happened. I think that's great. There should have been way more of that in this movie. Mm -hmm. And and it was all jump scares, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. So anyway, he makes it to the garden room and he finds out what spirit has been locked in the garden room. Now, if you've been paying attention, you probably know. Kelsey, what spirit is locked in this garden room? His dead wife. It's his dead wife, where they relive the moment of her death over again. How did she die? She had, like, schizophrenia, which is, that's implied. But now she's trying to convince him, no, it was real, and I was really seeing ghosts. It's Uh just like, what? Are you saying that people with schizophrenia are actually talking to real beings? That is a fucked up thing to say, movie. Yeah. Uh, And... She's going to go kill herself, and he tries to stop her, and that's when she... It's kind of an accident. She shoots him. I mean, she obviously knows what she's doing, but it's also like, no, fuck you, get away from me. I'm killing myself. Yes. So it's kind of an accident, kind of not really, and then she does shoot herself. And then she's tragic. She shoots herself. She's like, oh, God. Yeah. With a Winchester rifle. Why she would be drawn to this house and blame the Winchester rifle company? I think... Anyone who's just killed by a Winchester happens to come there. Why wasn't it 80% Southern soldiers then? I know. I think the implication is that you had to, you know, you're an angry spirit. That's what they always say. It's you're you're held here by your anger or your unwillingness to move on. And so these people, I think, are drawn to the energy of that house. And that energy calls to them because they were all killed through the same means. I'm making all of that up out of my own head. The movie Uh did nothing to tell me that. Right. But this explains, I think, is an effective explanation. This is the one thing this story gets right about it, is it's an explanation as to why Price is connected, why she wants him specifically, and why he can see these ghosts, because he also was killed by a Winchester rifle. Yes. He just happened to be revived. (laughs) So anyway, this diversion that happens for no reason, he makes it back upstairs to Helen Mirren and they're fighting against Ben Block's ghost. Oh, God, this is the worst part. Yes, it's really bad. It's an action scene. It becomes an action movie at this point. Uh, 
I could go on and on about how horrible this scene is. Yeah. I'm not going to because there's no need to. After the doorway to this room gets locked off, he has to find another way back in and he ends up smashing that ceiling at the stairway in order to get in. In order to trap the ghost back in, she shoots Helen Mirren, shoots a rifle, by the way, not a shotgun, (laughs) shoots a rifle, which manages to knock out the leg of one of these glass cabinets where it tumbles over and falls perfectly over the hole that he created. And now he can hammer the this cabinet down into the floor with 13 nails which she happens to have on her person he tries to do that with a hammer and it magically flies out of his hand and almost hits her and when he goes to her she hands him the rifle and he uses the rifle to do the rest of it which is so belabored you were right next to the hammer pick it back up and try again if you're worried about the 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 tool you're using accidentally hurting somebody maybe using a rifle is not the best thing to do it's it this whole scene is really just awful Push comes to shove, he needs to shoot the ghost, and nothing is effective and nothing is is working, obviously, because it's just normal bullets, and he runs out of ammo, and so, yes, he takes the bullet that he keeps on his person at all times, and he uses it to shoot Ben Block. Because apparently that now has magical powers. Yes, because it's a, it's a ghost bullet now, because it was That's used to kill somebody. Bullet. I don't know. Why that would have the effect of killing him. I don't know why killing him after he's already dead. Why that would even be a thing. I don't know why him dying means his ghost brothers and all the other ghosts that are trapped there suddenly evaporate too. Because that's how Marion Marriott gets out of this mess. Is the ghost just disappears when they kill Ben Block again. Then why was her story even necessary? She doesn't do anything. There's so many notes here with a billion question marks. Just what? What? Yes. Why would this bullet even have? Yeah, it's. (sighs) Not even going to get into it because it's just it will make me angry. Yeah. And you just got to know it's just so terrible. And if you want to see this one scene just to know, because don't bother watching the rest of the movies is boring and pointless. If you just want to see this last scene, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube and you can see how ridiculously shot and and acted. Yeah, it's it's so bad. And then uh, we hear Price narrating and basically saying that uh, it's, it's his letter he's writing back to the Winchester company and uh, she's perfectly sane. That's the end of movie. whoop de doo She ended up living for several more years. This movie. It starts out so well. It starts out pretty solid. What are your lightning round thoughts about it? Let's, uh, no lightning round stuff? I have a few things. I think they could have made the Ben Block reveal cooler by incorporating him more throughout the movie. This is what the movie says at the end. The 1906 San Francisco earthquake was the most destructive and deadly earthquake in American history. Sarah Winchester continued to build her house 24 hours a day, seven days a week, up until her death in 1922. The Winchester house remains one of the most haunted mansions in North America. By what standard? Why do people even think it's still haunted? Could it be a publicity stunt? 
by the company that owns it and makes their money off of you thinking it's haunted? Could it be? Satan? Maybe? I don't know. This movie also kind of walks the line on the gun issue. The whole thing is about the destructive power of guns and how they were useful, but they're also terrible. And Sarah Winchester is a staunch gun control advocate, effectively. But how does the whole movie resolve itself? By shooting more guns. Sarah Winchester herself shoots one as a tool to get a construction job done. (laughs) It's like the movie was scared of offending like Second Amendment rights activists, right? Like it, it just walks this line and it falls over every side of it. I pick a side. If you want to be like this is a cool gun movie, go right ahead. I fucking love the John Wick series. One way more than number two. Let's be honest. The first John Wick movie is fucking awesome. And there's tons and tons of guns in it. I love it. There's guns in the Halloween franchise, especially the new one. Like, I'm fine with a movie being like, look at all of our cool guns. But the like the core premise of this movie and arguably its main character, although not the protagonist, its main character, Sarah Winchester, her whole thing is all surrounding her guilt about these guns and what they've done. And it's proven that she's right about all of it. And yet guns are still the solution. What, what is this movie even trying to say? Nothing. It's not trying to say it's not trying anything. To say shit. It's just trying to make a buck. Yep, it's ridiculous. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? 13. Holy shit! 14. (laughs) Like a grand staircase within the famous mansion that inspired it, Winchester appears poised to get a rise out of audiences, but ultimately leads nowhere. Uh, a pretty good consensus statement yeah. there. Yeah. Metacritic of 28%, cinema score of B minus. People felt good coming out of that movie, <laughs> or at least average coming out. B minus is kind of average, like for cinema score. Like, why? That's immediately come because that's what cinema score does. They survey people who come out of the theater. On, like, opening night or opening weekend. Well, I want to know how many 13-year-olds they were interviewing. Right. Like, how do you, how immediately after the ending of this movie, how do you have good feelings about it? If you're a kid, I see it. What would you give it, Kelsey? I'll give it a 14. I'll go right on par with that. Wow. Yep. Now, I was disappointed in the movie. I was not that disappointed in the movie. It does, the, the first third is really interesting and you're oh, like it's not interesting it's fine no but it's like oh this this movie might not be so bad right and that's only because of how bad we were told it was right. and then it got worse listen i'm not gonna give it a 50 or anything like that i'll give it a 20 okay but what little goodwill you have for this movie because it just drains away throughout <laughs> the length of the movie when they keep Fucking up simple shots, simple editing, simple continuity, simple concepts. So much is predictable and you see where it's coming with the bullet, with the ghost butler. Like (laughs) all that stuff is so predictable. And then this climax that is just action packed 
And contrary to the spirit of the rest of the movie, it just what little goodwill you have for this movie falls apart in the end. And I can't give it higher than a 20. And I mean, this is coming from me and I love Haunted House movies. Yeah, she really does. And we had two Haunted House movies this one. We go from The Legend of Hell House, <laughs> which you gave a 79 and I gave an 80, to Winchester, <laughs> which you gave a 14 and I gave a 20. Sorry, Chloe. I, I hope you wanted to get our reaction out of this <laughs> and that you're not actually a fan. If you are, I don't begrudge you of that. I'm not here to yuck your yum. <laughs> I just hope we didn't disappoint you. <laughs> we really did not like this movie. Yeah, no. And if you were expecting us to not like this movie, I hope you got what you wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Chloe, thank you very much for writing in and recommending this movie. Yes. That was this week's episode. Legend of Hell House from 1973 and Winchester from 2018. What, pray tell, Kelsey, are we watching next week? Next week is another recommendation week. Woohoo! And this comes from the Chickapedia. Hey, Chickapedia! On oh god, Chickapedia! Oh, Chickapedia! You're gonna be so excited. <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing it. Yes, she said this was one of her favorite. Well, one of them is one of her favorite movies. I I think she put it at her number one recently on Twitter. She gave us like a. It list was of in the favorite. top ten. I don't yeah, know what number uh-huh. it specifically was. This is going to be a werewolf week. We're going to be watching The Howling and Ginger Snaps. We're doing it. We're doing it. We're watching more werewolf movies. We haven't seen a werewolf movie since the Wolfman episode, right? The Wolfman. (laughs) The Wolfman and the Wolfman. (laughs) And then before that, American Werewolf in London, which was like our second episode. Mm -hmm. So, man, I'm excited to get back into wolf stories. Yes. The Howling Witch is the one with the mom from E.T. <laughs> yes. What's that werewolf movie with E.T.'s mom in it? The Howling Horror, straight ahead. It is. Uh, it's a famous series that I don't think a, a lot of people have seen. You've just heard of it. And there's tons of them. And they, if you if you read like the subtitles and their plots and stuff like that, oh boy, does this go places. <laughs> the second one is called The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. <laughs> That gives you any indication of where these where these movies go. <laughs> but the first one was directed by Joe Dante and reportedly is the reason why Spielberg chose him to direct Gremlins, which he directed immediately after this. Hmm. It was worked on by Botten, the same guy who worked on The Thing and nearly had a nervous breakdown. Listen to our Thing episode to hear about that. And... It was originally supposed to be – the special effects were originally supposed to be done by Rick Baker, who left – to go do American Werewolf in London. And these two werewolf movies came out like in the same year and they both have transformation scenes. And we'll talk all about that when we get to this uh, episode next week. Now, Ginger Snaps also I haven't seen. I I've heard- seen it. Okay, I haven't seen it since I was like 14. Uh-huh. But from what I remember, I really liked it. So I'm excited to see it again. Yeah, we will give you our real thoughts after we see it and uh, we talk about it in next week's episode. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com. That's our website. You can go there and you can browse all of our episodes, plus a list of every movie we've ever done. I put posters up on the website for every single one of them so you can get a visual look at all of them. 
every movie we've had on the show. If you're relatively new and you haven't listened to the rest of our episodes, this is a great way to browse through our backlog by finding a movie that you're interested in hearing us talk about first and then listening to that episode. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. I'll add comments on the Twitter feed when I'm editing and the mics are off. Kelsey will sometimes live tweet a random horror movie or TV show. Recently, that was you, which we talked about earlier in this episode. You can also, through these methods, comment, share your thoughts on these movies, or even recommend one like Chloe or Chickapedia have done this week and for next week. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, Five-star ratings with written reviews are the biggest help you could possibly do for us. It's really what gets us seen. So we really appreciate those of you who have done that. More importantly, share us with your friends. And even more importantly, thank you guys for listening in the first place. We love and appreciate you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Any last words? It just so happens, I believe mediumship is God's manifestation in man. To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Smolders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones Oh, Jesus. Marion Daisy has this line in the movie, I'm a mother, a fighter, a protector, and I am not afraid. I wrote that down, but it was part of when I was just like, fuck this movie, and I didn't want to say it. Like, but what is her... She just gets that moment where she stands up to the ghost, but she would fucking die if they didn't kill Ben Block. So what did she really accomplish other than standing up for herself, which is cool, I guess. I They needed a mother in the role. They needed another woman in the story. Sure. But then, like, make her a bigger element of that. Make her be the one to fire the gun. He tosses her the bullet. Get her involved. Have her do something. Make her consequential. If you don't, she's just a token woman character. A token mother character. You want a horror movie with motherly themes? I guess watch Bird Box. I realize I don't have the plot synopsis and this one's very long. I'm not going to read that one. They are two twins that write and direct films. They are two twins? Well, they're both twins. They're twins. Yeah, I didn't say they're two sets of twins. Okay. He's a twin. He's a twin. They're two twins. And you're a twin. And you're a twin. <laughs> you're a twin. You get a twin. And you get a twin. <sighs> and Eric Prince had been around. Had been wandering around because he couldn't sleep. Yeah, Prince Price. Eric Prince, He, he's the Blackwater guy. Oh, fuck. Um, Eric Price.
and he decided that the thing to do was to kill innocent people in the rifle company? Rifle company is a confusing term. That's a real military term. <laughs> At the company that made the rifles? It's... I, it, uh, he has one of himself, uh, at, uh, at, uh, it, what do you, what do you call that? It's a communication thing where you talk through the tubes. Yeah, communication system where you talk through tubes. Okay.